Hi, and welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. We're the show that tackles some pretty tough topics sometimes. Today's topic, I think, is one of the toughest, and fortunately I have two very knowledgeable people with me who can expand on the situation and help us understand it, not only what has happened, but also the implications for the future. Barry Goldstein, thank you for joining us on the show. Happy to be here. Okay, Barry is not a a newcomer to the show. He's been here before and always a great asset. Also with me is Paul Griffin. Paul, say hello to the audience, will you? Thank you for having me. Great. Now, Paul is um, actually with the... Child Justice Organization. He is the legal director for Child Justice, and he's a practicing attorney in Maryland and in the District of Columbia. He's been a litigator for about 20 years, and he has tried cases in both state and federal courts, and he also has done a lot with child uh, abuse and domestic violence. So thank you very much, Paul, for joining us. We will really rely on your expertise. Equally experienced is Barry Goldstein. He is a nationally recognized domestic violence author, speaker, advocate. He's been in this for a number of years as well, and uh, it would be hard to find somebody more knowledgeable. He is uh, with the he's the co-chair for the Child Custody Task Group for NOMAS and serves as director of research for the Stop Abuse Campaign. You're also a prolific author, Barry, and uh, one of the most recent uh, books that you came out with was about the Quincy Solution, Stop Domestic Violence and Save $500 Billion. I wish we were doing a show on that right now, but uh, instead we're going to focus on a recent legal uh, case that has happened. That legal case is out of Orange County. And what is fascinating about this legal case, because of course there's millions of legal cases in this country every day, but the one that happened in Orange County that resulted in about, oh gosh, six or seven million dollars, is a case where a woman, a young girl, uh, was taken away from her mother based upon recommendations from two social workers. The lawsuit was actually against the county because of the social workers. But what's at at the core of this is that the mother was accused of alienating the children and making up stuff uh, about violence and abuse. And because the social workers... um, indicated that, yes, they believed us this, and um, the allegations were that they lied about that. The county was sued, not only by the girl, but by the mother. There was a huge uh, uh, case where the mother was given millions of dollars as well. But the case we're talking about today was brought by the daughter, who is now an adult, and she was awarded more than $6 million. Um, Let's start with our practicing attorney first, Paul did I sum up this case well, or am I? Yes, you did. It, it was it was uh, child. I believe it's child protective services or whatever their equivalent is in California, and we'll just call them all generically CPS or child protective services. In that case, they were found to have uh, lied and manufactured evidence or manufactured testimony, and. Uh, it's not to get too deep in the weeds here, but it's it's difficult to sue because they were actually government actors. It's very difficult to sue government actors. Uh, they have uh, often what's called uh, quasi-judicial immunity uh, that that you have to make a high standard showing. So that but the daughter obviously met a very high standard of showing that their actions were deliberate and malicious, 
uh, and lied and caused and caused her to lose a constitutional right in this case uh, uh, her connection to her her mother. So it's very impressive. Uh, it's very, I like to read the briefing on it. I'm sure it's very good legal work done by her attorneys, and uh, I'm glad to see justice met it out, uh, uh, even though the, the 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 scales are still highly tilted the other way. It's nice to see a win uh, occasionally on something like this. It's, it's it's very difficult, very difficult to get a win in this area. So um, we're very very pleased and impressed with this. Well, not only is it difficult to get a, a win because you're dealing with people who are for the most part, protected against lawsuits um, because of their their work and their decisions. Um, you can't sue judges. You can't sue guardians ad litem. Correct. You can't sue, you know, they're all protected. And and I can understand that. I mean, if you are in good conscience practicing your job and you make a reasonable decision or one that, you know, why should you have to worry every moment that you're going to be sued? However, there the, the flip side of that is then you can just, do whatever you want, and there's very little consequence. So right. that's one reason that this case was pretty tough, was that the fact that the girl was allowed to sue these people. But it's also pretty tough because this is not some unique, isolated case. Barry, these kinds of custody decisions are made all the time, aren't they? Yes. Um, as a matter of fact, it's kind of exciting. Um, there's some new research that's about to come out, led by um, Joan Meyer uh, from DV Leap, and her article, which is based on the pilot research, um, just came out in the last few days. Mm-hmm. And one of the findings is that in a majority, uh, a serious majority of contested custody cases involving abuse, the courts are getting it wrong. They're sending children to live with dangerous abusers. That's not the exception. It's what happens in most of these cases. Um, And that's scary, but the fact that it's now a major government study will confirm that um, should help change the discussion. So what you're saying, Barry, is that well, let me just clarify for the audience. Sure. What you're saying, Barry, is that I think the old-fashioned way of thinking, and for people who aren't involved in these things and don't know anything about it, I know I had a friend once, and, and she said, oh, her neighbor, a new neighbor moved in, and there's something wrong with that new neighbor because she lost custody of her children. And I said, really? Why do you think there was something wrong with her because she lost custody? And the response was, well, good mothers don't lose custody. I think that's the public perception. But what you're saying, Barry, and what we all know is that, in fact, good mothers lose custody all the time. And sometimes, if not oftentimes, they lose custody to bad fathers. Am I making a sweeping generalization here, or am I stating a fact? You're making a sweeping generalization that is true. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I would agree with that. And if I could add, I've had... That same conversation you had with your your friend or or neighbor, countless times. I mean, you know, when, when you hear about, when I'm like talking about some of the cases, and the mom hasn't uh, had uh, hasn't had worthwhile contact with her children in years, they always say, "Is she a drug addict? Is she insane?" I mean, you know, that's just all these assumptions. 
And, and in fact, when I describe my job that I deal, I deal with my my specialty, our specialty job does is, is we deal with custody cases involving serious allegations of domestic violence and/or child abuse and sexual child sexual abuse. And people think, other than the emotional toll on it, they assume we have an easy job. You just go in and tell the court what's happening, and they're going to protect the kids. They have no understanding. They have the view, the old world view that you just described, Heather, that you know that the court's going to step in and protect the, the 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 weaker parties here, which are the children and often the mother. And that is just far, far from the truth, unfortunately. Yeah, I've heard people say, "Well, why doesn't she just take him to court? They'll make him do whatever." Yeah. You know, they'll make him behave. They'll make him, and that's not what courts do. Courts are not about justice, and I'm not saying this to be make any aspersions. Courts aren't about fairness; they're about laws. Yeah. I always tell my clients we don't have a, a justice system; we have a legal system. And, and don't look for justice; look for a good legal outcome. But don't look for justice because even when we win, you're not you're not likely to get. You know, what, what you think you have coming to you, or you, know, you think you're going to have a judge say, oh, you've been so wronged, and this has been terrible. I mean, that's not going to happen. The best you can hope for is, is just a good legal outcome. Uh, it sounds, yeah. It's a cliche to say it, but go ahead, yeah. I'm sorry. But when we're talking about our children, we think surely, surely when we're talking about our children, fairness and right comes before some sort of rule, doesn't it? But in fact, it doesn't. Barry, how often does this happen? You you said that uh, Joan Meyer's new study indicates that this happens m- uh, most of the time. Well, the uh, I- the statistics were that um, 69% of um, cases with DV allegations, um, 81% with child sexual abuse allegations, the alleged abuser wins. And we know that deliberate false reports of abuse by women occurs less than 2% of the time. So that means in most of these cases, the courts are sending children to live with their abusers and their rapists and, um, you know, really turns your stomach. Yeah. You know, Barry, I, about, about seven years ago, I, I first learned about this in my own state of Washington. And over in the rural area, the, uh, the eastern half, um, I read a news article about a young girl who turned 18 and sued. Now, I am giving you just the briefest little summary because I was not able to track down the actual details of the settlement. But she sued everything from her guardian's ad litems to the judge, guardian's ad litem to the judge. Um, I don't know who of those had were dismissed. I don't know what went through, but the fact is that there was some sort of settlement, and of course part of that settlement was that no one talk about it. Um, Mm -hmm. But she, as a small child, was taken away from her protective mother and given to her father, full custody to the father, even though the father was accused of sexually molesting her. The first thing the father did was to move in with his own father, who had in fact served jail time for pedophilia. And for at least seven years, that girl was forced to live in that home. And when she turned 18, she found somebody to sue. And again, I don't know the disposition of that, but I was absolutely gobsmacked by that. And in fact, it happens. It happens so frequently. So what, 
what are we doing about it? I mean, clearly this girl had a huge win. She went back to court. She sued. Now her mother also went back to court and sued, and they won. Why did it work for this girl to sue? Do we know enough about that case, Paul? I, I do not. I, I can tell you one difference we have in Maryland, uh, thankfully, uh, and, and actually it was um, a, uh, an attorney in Maryland and Greg Jacob who does a lot of work with us, and pro bono work, uh, uh, child justice, won this case about 10 years ago. We eliminated guardians ad litem in Maryland. They're now called best interest, <coughs> best interest attorneys. And the big distinction and what came out of this lawsuit was that a child – uh, has a right to sue what's now called the best interest attorney for malpractice, just as you have a right to sue your lawyer in a car accident case or a breach of contract case if they commit malpractice. So we're one of the few states now where the children are allowed to sue, um, one, when they become an adult, or two, if their custodial parent wants to sue on their behalf, uh, the, the best interest attorneys. Unfortunately, we're not seeing any of these suits. Uh, and and I think that would be a great um, uh, way to keep these folks honest. Part of the problem that we have is multiple. One, they're still children, and in order to sue, they have to be in the custody of a protective parent. And if they're not in custody of a protective parent, then it's, it's not going to happen. The abusive parent uh, is not going to, of course, sue the, child, uh, sue the child's lawyer uh, because the abusive parent got what he or she wanted. Second, I think I – think your description of the 18-year-old and this other girl that just won in California are, are rare partially because it's so painful that, that when they turn 18, they don't, they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to deal with it. You're seeing this in Catholic Church uh, sex abuse cases. You know, one of the reasons you're seeing a, a change in the statutes of limitation and allowing people to sue later when you're particularly talking about sexual abuse cases is people don't, aren't ready to talk about it until they're well into their 40s sometimes, if at all. Yeah. So an 18-year-old is not even though they're legally emancipated, and even if they're under the the the, the wing of a, the back under the wing of the protective parent, it's it's a very very difficult emotional um, uh, road to walk, and it's understandable. Um, I I have been working with some um, uh, psychologists here uh, in Maryland on the East Coast about getting more of these now adults open up and at least talk about these things because. People, as you talked about before, they, they sometimes doubt that this stuff's happening. It sounds so unbelievable. There ought to be now more adult witnesses who were, were children there when this happened who are now adult willing to talk about it, and she, she confirmed what I've been saying. It's very difficult for them to talk about it in public. They, they're not, they don't want to. They're not ready. Uh, so, you know, some, Even those that are in their late 20s or 30s are just not ready to talk about it, uh, or they want to understand well, at least put it behind them. Yeah, I would suggest well, like that. that but, the, but so many of these things are are based on the fact that you know, oh, the other parent alienated the child. But the fact is that when you're yeah. living with someone, it's very easy to say, well, your mom's not seeing you because she, I guess, she just doesn't want to see you. Um, uh, you know, right. so who knows what kind of mind things go on with children who are ripped away from one parent? So, Barry, you, I interrupted you, and you were going to say something. Yeah, I, I would suggest that one of the problems is that when a court uses their standard practices and therefore sends a child to a dangerous abuser, they're acting normally in terms of how the court system works. And I would think it would be harder to prove liability when professionals used 
really bad, flawed approaches that don't aren't supported by current research, but they used approaches that are standard in the court system. And you're touching on an extremely important area, and I couldn't agree more on it. And a lot of this, I hate to say, a lot of these problems circle back to basic incompetence often on the part of the protective parent's attorney, to be perfectly honest. I mean, a lot of the testimony that you're hearing about, this is what the, you know, they, they were allowed to say, I'll use the Maryland law as an example, but a lot of these are generic rules that are based on the federal rules of evidence that apply probably in all the states or most of the states. A witness cannot take the stand and say a mom is a liar and the dad is telling the truth. That is absolutely inappropriate and not admissible. In fact, in Maryland, it would be reversible error, be grounds for reversible error. But it happens all the time. Child Protective Services people say, so what happened? You did your investigation. And they say, yeah, and the girl, I didn't believe her. She didn't sound credible. I talked with the father, and he sounded incredible, and I believed him. That is totally inadmissible. That's for a judge only to try our fact to make a determination, and an expert can't even opine on it. Now, they can say things like the girl said things uh, that the light was, that the house was red, and I went in the house was blue that could lead uh, a judge to make a, draw an inference from that that the child's lying, and that's acceptable. But a lot of these lawyers are not doing their jobs. They're allowing uh, bad science, junk science, to come in, like parental alienation syndrome, which should never be allowed. They're allowing, like I just said, these credibility determinations to be made. Uh, and they're allowing a, a, a new bugaboo that we're seeing now, this uh, so-called child medical, medical child abuse, where a protective parent believes the child is sexually abused, so they take them to a doctor, and they take them too many times to a doctor, and you're getting people saying that that is a form of child abuse because you're taking them to a doctor too many times. So that's another thing we're dealing with, which in our view in Maryland, it's not been adjudicated, but it's inadmissible for a whole host of reasons that we're, we're trying to get the right case up on appeal. And what we do at child justice, obviously is we, our big, our biggest thing, our biggest rule, or actually a couple of them that we take these cases, if we're keeping the system honest, we're not allowing the evidence to come in. We're not allowing employees to come in without a fight, uh, you know, a, a, a pre-trial motion and limiting, it's called, to exclude the evidence. We're not allowing these uh, uh, child protective services or custody evaluators to opine on the credibility of witnesses, which they're not allowed to do. And we're trying to, to keep the system a lot more honest, and we're finding success doing that. And it also, quite frankly, preserves the record for an appeal. Now, I, I don't want to be too long-winded on this. I, there's a reason I think some of these lawyers aren't doing that. Um, some of it is just basic incompetence, to be perfectly honest. Uh, but some of it is your average, and I think Barry could back this up. Your average family lawyer will take whatever client comes in the door. I mean, that's understandable. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not uh, smearing that. I mean, they have to, to pay the bills, and that's what attorneys do. But they don't want to attack parental alienation syndrome today because they might be using it themselves tomorrow in another case. So they, they're, they're not going to attack what they see as one of the tools in their toolkit, even though it's being used against them in this particular instance. And for us, as advocates who are uh, clearly aligned on one side, that's not a problem. I'm happy to attack that and try to do what I can. We're working on getting case law in Maryland. We're making it clear it's totally inadmissible. And I, I think if we had were able to better educate some of these lawyers, but also I would tell I would tell any listeners out there who are in this situation to to talk with their lawyer, to make sure 
that they have no problems attacking some of these things. And if you have a lawyer who will use words, phrases like, I don't want to, I don't want to anger the judge. I don't want to make the judge mad. I don't want to make the child protective services people mad by attacking them. I would, I would seriously consider getting another lawyer. Having said yeah, that, I don't Paul, mean they you, need you're, you're dealing ahead. in a, in an ideal scenario. Most people who are going through this are tapped out. They don't. They are. They, they are. Know, so many women go through this where they don't even have. They're just representing themselves. Um, you know. So the fact that you know, if you can afford a, an attorney at all, you know, it, it, you're it's a absolutely miracle. correct. You're absolutely correct. But but we've seen, and I know Barry has seen. We have seen uh, middle class, upper middle class, downright wealthy mothers lose, spend literally hundreds of thousands of dollars, and not see their kids for for a year or great periods of time and, and be on supervised visitation, spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on attorney's fees and still having competent representation. So you're right. Exactly. Uh, a lot of them are by themselves. And when we get Well, and I think people, also, and I'm going to, Paul, I'm going to switch to Barry for this, because sure. I also think that there's a less um, brazen reason for it. I think that unless people have been around abusive folks, unless they have personal experience with that, it's very hard for the average person to really understand that good old Joe is really that devious and nasty. I I think that we all evaluate things based on our personal experiences, and if we've never had an experience with an abuser, I think that we tend to think that the other person is just kind of stretching the truth a little bit. Barry, am I on to something there, or have you seen that? Uh, yeah, I think that that's part of it, and what I would say is that abusers act very differently in the privacy of their homes than they do in public, and so it is very common for people to judge them on their public persona, and the only person who can testify who knows the truth is the mother, and we tend to disbelieve her. We think she has an axe to grind, and yet she's the one that you know has the best understanding. Um, and I think another part to this is that courts, whether deliberately or otherwise, send out a message that they don't want to take the time, that they don't want to hear information about abuse, and that's another reason that attorneys are not presenting uh, evidence of domestic violence and child abuse. They're, you know, telling their clients, you know, not to say anything about it. And I don't think judges are understanding how they're silencing both attorneys and litigants. And what that means is that the courts are making decisions with, without all the information they need. Well, and of course we had we have talked about um, the, the the Saunders report, and I've spoken um, with, with Dr. Saunders myself. And his basic premise is that courts operate in a way that isn't beneficial to. And I'm I'm sorry, Dr. Saunders, if I'm butchering what you're saying, but my understanding of it is uh, from your report is that the way courts operate and the the methodologies that they use really are not effective when you're dealing with this kind of a scenario, when you're dealing with abusers where, um, you know, you, you, you're, you, 
you're having to look at a whole picture and you're having to look at varying uh, uh, scenarios within that picture, and that's just not the way courts have been designed to do. It's like, okay, we've got five things on our sheet here. We'll do the first one, and then that's gone, and you never talk about that again. Um, am I, again, sorry sorry if I'm butchering, you know, the Saunders premise, but is that kind of what you're saying, Barry? Yeah, I, I think that's fair, too. You know, Heather, um, a few months ago I wrote two two articles, two parts of an article, and I referenced 20 standard practices in the custody courts that all tilt the court towards risking children and helping abusers. And they're not things that... You know, the court is deliberately trying to do that, but they all work that way. And courts tend to be very defensive when we start raising information that demonstrates that the practices that they developed in the 70s aren't working for children. And I think one of the things that the Saunders study says is that professionals who do not have the specific knowledge that is needed, which is most of the professionals in the custody courts, they're focusing on the myth that mothers frequently make false reports. They're focusing on unscientific alienation theories. And they may not tell the judge, well, I I think you should give custody to the father because I'm focusing on these mistaken beliefs. But that's what's happening. And so it might not even be in the record why they're making bad recommendations. Yeah. When I was, a couple years ago, I was asked to do some speaking, and and, um, one of the, I kind of solidified my thoughts for this presentation, and I said that from what I see, courts, most courts, not all courts, of course, some courts are very knowledgeable, well-educated, and they do a good job, but Many courts across this country, it seems to me, operate under three mistaken premises. One is that if an abuser is abusive to the mother, that doesn't mean that he's going to be abusive to the child. Uh The other mistaken premise is that every child has to and will benefit from a relationship with his father, no matter how bad that father is. And the third premise that I've I identified is she lies. There's just that kind of like that underlying assumption. And maybe it's not just the courts. Maybe that's how we are as a culture, as a society. But it seems to me that that's what the courts operate under is those three mistaken beliefs. I believe that if you have a parent, male or female, who is damaging you as a child, that's not going to benefit you to continue to have a relationship with that person, at least not in your childhood. Why do courts believe that? Why do courts automatically believe that women are lying when all of the studies show that, yep, there's a tiny bit of false reporting, but it's about the same for both men and women? No, it's not. The, it's the, not? Ballast, the ballast study very clearly shows that fathers involved in contested custody are 16 times more likely to make deliberate false reports than mothers. Now, that doesn't mean that women are that much more honest than men, but in the context of child custody, when you're dealing with the worst abusers, which is what contested custody is, they are 16 times more likely to make false reports. Which study is that? 
Bala, B-A-L-A, and cited in the Saunders study. Okay. Well, I'm I sorry. I, 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 go ahead, Paul. I, I think one of, you know, I'm, I'm not apologizing for the courts, but I think so there's a couple things going on. But let me back up. I, I would add one more fallacy to what you're to what you're saying, and I agree with the three you have. The fourth one is that, and it kind of fits in with the not necessarily a bad parent, even though he's uh, a spouse veteran. Uh, and that's that if the judges believe if I could just separate these two parties, things will work out fine in the custody arrangement. They'll both, you know, he'll have the kids three days a week, she'll have four, and off and on, and they'll work together to raise their kids. I'm just separating <laughs> it with situational domestic violence, which is a, a uh, Toby Kleiman calls it, in her, and Dan Palak in her new book call it the, you know, the great myth or the great fallacy. That even when a judge does find or believe there's domestic violence, that, that it's not going to be that bad a relationship going forward as co-parenting and will often order joint custody, which just does not work in those dynamics. Uh, usually the, the batterer continues to, to use the system to batter the victim and uses whatever power he's been given. But I think, I think one of the problem that a lot of judges have uh, that, I've, that I've witnessed is a multitude of things going on here you know they kind of have this Stanley Kowalski cliche in their mind of what a, a, a wife beater you know a domestic violence perpetrator looks like you know you know, you, yeah. you know the Marlon Brando character from Streetcar Named Desire and that's not what they are I mean you're as Barry correctly said when they get into court these are the worst types of abusers and the ones who are willing to fight it out in court are quite often uh, this sounds very dramatic but they're sociopaths quite often and I don't mean they're on the roof with a rifle, like that kind of sociopath, but I mean, they, if you read you know, The Sociopath Next Door or some of the other literature on this, they're very, first of all, they're very common. They're anywhere from one out of 20 to one out of 10 Americans probably have some uh, level of sociopathy in them. But they're very good, very good at lying, very good at manipulating, and they're very good at smooth, schmoozing people and manipulating them to get what they want and presenting well. And so you have these judges in family court, and your average family court case for a judge often involves a lot of deadbeat, I'll use the term deadbeat dads, and I don't feel like I'm beating up on dads because there are deadbeat moms, but your statistics show that if the, the father's not paying child support more often, and he's dealing with a judge, he or she's dealing with these deadbeat dads who seem to have no interest in their kids, don't want to pay for them, et cetera, et cetera. Then they get a case in front of them where they've got a father who presents very well, uh, and he comes across very well on this the sociopath they're working in them and he, he's domestic abuser or he's abusing the child, sexually abusing the child, let's say, and there's and we all know that evidentiary wise it's extraordinarily difficult to prove child sexual abuse. You know, particularly when it's perpetrated by a family member. Because by the time if you get a kid to the doctor, usually it's already been several days since the event. There's usually no tears, there's usually no DNA left behind. It's very difficult. Um there's a study called It's Normal to be Normal, and they studied, it took, I think, 200 cases of admitted sexual child abuse where the sexual abuser admitted to abuse, and they had independent blind studies. They had pediatricians review the records to make findings. Something like something like 75% of them, they ruled out sexual abuse, even though it actually had happened. In fact, happened that been admitted to by the perpetrator just based on the, the, the physical evidence. So that's just how, how difficult it is. So you have this scenario now where you've got a mom making these allegations of sexual abuse, no evidence to support it. 
And like most people probably who would be in a situation, they're starting to panic and freak out because they think that they, their child's being hurt and they thought the system was going to help them. And so far they're, they're seeing the system is not helping them at all and it's hurting them. And maybe she starts doing some, some bad things as a litigant, like not following temporary court orders for visitation or other stuff because she's protecting the child. Uh, and you have on the other side this guy who presents very well because he, he is, again, possibly a sociopath. It says, unlike these other deadbeat dads this judge has been dealing with, he says, I want my kids. I love my kids. I want to be in my kids' life. I want to have custody of them. So you have this judge who's like, wow, this is great. I finally got a good dad here in front of me. And it's a lot easier for everybody, including a judge, especially just to believe that the mom is making up lies than it is to believe this dad will be sexually abusing his child. I mean, she did. I mean, well, and she I mean, presents you be more kind of frantic and kind of, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, you, you know, uh, Paul. I had a, a a a family court judge on my show. I was speaking with family court judge off the air, and I said, "Please tell me what goes through a judge's mind when there are two parents fighting over custody, and one has documented domestic violence." I knew what she would say if I just said accusations of domestic violence, but if it's right. documented domestic violence. Um, how what goes through the judge's mind when the judge awards custody to that person instead of the other one? And her explanation to me was, well, you have to understand, you have two people in front of you, and one is just frantic and, and just not got it together at all, and exactly. then you've got the other one who is very well composed, has it together, so of course we'll give the children to him, especially if the domestic violence isn't that bad. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's and exactly thought, what I'm wow. describing, or, or variation of what I'm describing. Exactly right. Yeah. The so wow. Present, I mean, no yeah. total disconnect with understanding what yeah. domestic violence does. To say nothing of the fact that you've got a woman in front of you who has a history of knowing that this man will get his way. Yeah. Don't you think that's kind yeah. of scary? Wouldn't you be scared? And yet, yeah. if they present as scared, somehow or other, they're whack jobs. We're getting a little yeah, off and, and, of the topic. Yeah. You know, it's a it's a fascinating discussion. But I want to kind of come back to our Orange County case. What does this mean? Is this just an anomaly, or is this going to start happening all over the country? Or what's your best guess? Barry, well, you want to go first? Um, you know, when I was thinking about the show today, um, I was thinking about the Tracy Thurman story. And, you know, just for your listeners, very briefly, it was a very famous case um, from Connecticut um, where the police just dropped the ball. That You know, they were called in an emergency situation where um, Tracy Thurman was being assaulted by her um, husband, and the police officer stopped to relieve himself. He came to the house. The the abuser had a knife, and Tracy Thurman was injured and on the ground. The police officer took the knife, walked all the way to the front of the house to put the knife in the police car, left the abuser with Tracy on the ground, and he stomped on her neck, you know, paralyzing her. Um, You know, it was a really egregious case, and she sued um, the police department and many of the individual officers. 
and won a judgment, and I think finally settled whatever. But you know there was substantial money involved, and the significance of that case was that in response to that case, police changed their practices. They didn't change the practices because you know they felt so bad about um, a woman you know being so severely injured. They changed their practices because it became costly for them to continue doing the wrong things. So the hope with the case in Orange County um, is that if it gets the publicity, and particularly if there are some other cases like that, that that might be the one thing that pressures the professionals to do the right thing, even if it's for the wrong reasons. Do you concur, Paul? I, I wish I were as optimistic as that. I mean, I hope Barry's right. Um, I fear it won't. Um, I, I think part of the part of the distinction you'll find uh, when people, policymakers, and lawyers look at it is, right, and our folks don't lie, and we'll just make sure they don't lie. I mean, that that the malfeasance will get uh, the victims of the world a lot further. The malfeasance, the actual act of lying and perjuring themselves than misfeasance, which is just somebody uh, not doing their job or doing a poor job but not intentionally. And those people will still, those child protective services folks will still be immune to suit in the vast majority of the states, the vast majority of the circumstances. Now, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm hoping there will be some change, but uh, I, I, I don't see it happening. Um, I, I would like to in our state, I would like to see more, uh, let attorneys get sued for malpractice in their cases because they are. All you have to do is show simple malpractice and negligence. But I'm not optimistic that Child Protective Services, at least in my state uh, or in the District of Columbia, Maryland District of Columbia, are going to change their practices based on this happening. If, if perhaps we were to get some suits here and, and get a few multimillion-dollar judgments, then, then maybe you would. But... Uh, I, I'm not optimistic. I mean, I, I have a case now where, uh, you know, they sent a letter uh, that we, we received in production that they sent to the, the best attorney that uh, they're very concerned the mother's practicing parental alienation syndrome. And I, I know that's probably a topic, a great topic for another uh, another show, but there's a lot of debate about parental alienation, but it's, it's fairly well accepted. And I'm the, the phrase parental alienation syndrome is on the far fringe of what's clearly not admissible, clearly junk science, what's clearly been rejected by American Psychological Association, American Psychiatric Association, and its, uh, its diagnostic and the bar association. Yeah, yeah, the Bar Association and everyone. And, and, and she, the, the, the writer of this, this child protective service person, didn't even try to temper it with just the phrase alienation or even parental alienation, which I believe there's no distinction, but others do. By the distinction, and she she well, really I think pay, pay didn't, didn't they, they just when they started getting flack about parental alienation syndrome? I mean, I remember um, in in Denver, I was uh, uh, a friend of mine organized a, a rally about parental alienation syndrome, and one of the signs that they were protesting out the, outside the courthouse said, "Invent your own syndrome day." 
you know, because right. a syndrome is a specific thing. And friend, so right. in reaction to that, all the supporters of parental alienation just dropped syndrome, and they're still talking about parental alienation, and, and right. it's the same thing. And, and, it's a little play on and words. my point here is, is, is just a few months ago, my job at the conservatives, they're still using the phrase parental alienation syndrome. I mean, they, they haven't even gotten wise enough to change their lingo, even though they're using the same techniques and the same diagnoses and the same everything else. But just change that one word. They're still they're still using that phrase, uh, wow. and you know yeah, and that's that's where we're at. So I'm not I'm not um, I'm not as optimistic. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm not as optimistic about change. I'm, I'm, but I'm, you know it, I'd love to be wrong. That's for sure. Well, and maybe instead of looking, is this going to make the difference in court custody decisions? Maybe we should be scaling that question back and saying, is this going to make any difference in the way evaluations and testimony is put together? Would that make more sense, Barry? Would that make more sense, or is that just saying the same thing? But Well, I think there's two different issues. And and I didn't mean to say that I was optimistic. I I was I think I said it was the hope that that's what would okay. happen. Uh, sure. Yeah. And I don't mean to put words in your mouth, of course. You know. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I mean I don't. You know, if they stop because of these lawsuits, it would be because they're afraid of losing money. But I actually am optimistic for another reason, um, and that is I think we have reached the tipping point with the research and with the media for the first time really starting to do some investigations. And I think it's been put together in a way that, you know, could change and I think will eventually change the custody courts. And I've had some really wonderful discussions with the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges And it started when I put together the research and the media investigations, and they agree that we've gotten to the point where, you know, the present practices have been proven not to work. And they have asked to collaborate with the Stop Abuse Campaign to try to figure out how do we change training, how do we do reforms so that we can better protect children. Now, I mean, the National Council is probably the best judicial organization, the one most likely uh, to get it and to to be on the right side. Um, But I also spoke with people from the National Center for State Courts, and they also appreciated what I did and indicated that they realized that there was a need for change. And so I think that the research and the media investigations, that may be our best chance to make the kinds of changes that are needed. Um, And I think we need to do everything we can to make um, professionals more aware of this. You know, Paul was talking about the problems with attorneys representing protective mothers. They really need to go into court and talk about the ACE research and the Saunders study and the Meyer study and, you know, present it. And it also needs to be presented in a way that we're not offending the court. I mean, we're not going to say, hey, you've been screwing up all this time. You <laughs> want to say, um, you know, we now have substantial research that wasn't available 
when the original practice was created, and the research now is convincing that the old practices are harming children, and so we need to do something differently. And then you ask the judge, would you be open to listening to some of this new research? And the fact that the research is from such credible sources as the CDC and the U.S. Justice Department, you know, will make that somewhat easier. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and I agree with you, Amber. You, you are seeing more that, media coverage, of this, which is very helpful. Well, and I, quite honestly, um, a few months ago, I was—I um, did a presentation to Journalism and Women, a wonderful group of uh, women journalists, and it's primarily back east, um, but there are some very credible journalists, some very impressive journalists in that group, and I did a presentation on reporting um, gendered violence. And they were so receptive, and I have to say that, you know, some, when I was bringing up points, you know, you could see where, gosh, hadn't really dawned on them before, you know, that, oh, maybe I should go to the local domestic violence shelter to get a, a quote instead of going to, you know, my, the, the perpetrator's next-door neighbor to be told how wonderful he was, you know. Um, I mean, just different points like that, and they were extremely receptive. They were very positive about it, and so I think that, um, you know, from the journalist standpoint, and of course I have a soft spot for journalists because that's what my my background is, and uh, I think that they, as is the case with, I hope, a lot of the judicial system, it's just a matter of they're just not, they're just not aware. They're just not aware, and and even if they become aware, there's just really no depth of understanding because unless you've experienced something like this, we just as human beings don't have that understanding. Am yeah. I naive here? No, you're not. If if you don't if you don't live through these cases, you don't believe them. Uh, I, I, the first time I took one of these on, I was naively thought, okay, you know, I'll, I'll go to court, I'll put on my evidence, and you know. Uh, I, hopefully I'll win. I have enough, and chips will fall where they may. And I was totally naive to find out that I was stepping in family law cases are, are you know, the proverbial Alice in Wonderland, stepping through the one, you know, the, the, the looking glass. I mean, yeah. it, just, it seemed like the rules of evidence didn't apply for some reason. The hearsay was allowed to come in from the other side, but not allowed to come in on our side. I mean, just all over the place. And uh, if you don't live through these cases, uh, they're very hard to understand. I mean, I think that's the the big takeaway from all of this. Yeah, one of the theories, you know, the psychological theories about domestic violence is that, you know, it harkens back to, you know, uh, gender privilege, to male privilege. And part of me goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And part of me goes, well, maybe. But then when you look at courts, because it is such a male bastion, or traditionally has been, you think, well, could that be what's going on here? But then you see, you know, female judge, female attorney after, you know, I mean, it, it doesn't seem to really have a, a, a gender difference. Um, it, I'm going to be very, I'm probably going to get myself in big trouble saying this, but I, I have found the most difficult judges in these cases are the female judges. The females! Uh, yeah, they, they are. The women judges. It's, it's, it's really, and again, I'm probably going to get a lot of bad emails and stuff, but uh, same thing with uh, uh, guardians and light that are Female guardians of light are, are they are much tougher on the domestic violence victims. They are all over them. Um, I, I have. Have a, you seen a, that, Mary? Cross- yeah, go ahead. I mean, I, I would certainly say that you know there are plenty of um, women 
judges, GALs, et cetera, who are just as bad as the men. I think in general, I'd rather have a, a woman than a man, you know, for an abuse case. I, I would not, personally. Um, I, I, you know, but, but I think it's, this is much more subtle. There, one of the findings in the Meyer study is confirming the widespread gender bias. And the problem is that it's being done unintentionally, unconsciously. Um, but the problem is that anyone who's accused of gender bias is going to be very defensive um, and often retaliatory, which discourages anybody from raising the issue. Um, and, and so it's another example of how the practices in the courts silence information, you know, create self-censorship so that the courts are not getting information that they need. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we we pussyfoot, because, because we have to pussyfoot around, we have to approach these things subtly and I, so that the courts are not offended. So, that, I mean, I have never seen judges be so upset with anyone in the litigation as when they think that one of those parties is challenging the judge. You can challenge each other. You can say nasty things about each other. You can do whatever you want to each other. But if you start, if the judge interprets that you're doing something nasty or challenging him, that's when things, re they come down like crazy. At least that's what I have seen. And so you have to be so subtle and you have to be so pussyfoot, you know, with the actual court administration that, change has to be glacial. That's why I'm looking at this, you know, six point something million dollar lawsuit thinking maybe that is the hammer that will come down and you can stop being so delicate in your, you know, your efforts to make change. Maybe this is what will, maybe this will, you know, we can put big combat boots on instead of pussyfooting around so much. But maybe I'm being really naive here. What do you think, guys? Well, we hope. Yes, we do. <laughs> we, we do hope. And, and I agree with you, judges um, um, do not receive uh, what, what they perceive to be criticism of them very well. Uh, most people don't, but people in power particularly don't, and judges are in power, and you know, they, are, they are the kings and queens of the courtroom. And uh, they won't often even like to admit they were wrong. Uh, one of the problems you'll have is uh, you'll, you'll have allegations of sexual abuse that will get ruled out, and then new evidence will arise, new evidence. And the court will say, we've already been through this. We already know there's not sexual abuse. Well, no, we haven't. This is new evidence here. But to acknowledge this new evidence that there might now, in fact, be sexual abuse would require the judge to realize that he or she was wrong, likely wrong before. And, and the number of times I've heard that very phrase, we've already been through this, here we go again, kind of thing thrown at us is, is uh, countless. Uh, and to me, it comes back to they don't want to admit that they may have been wrong before. So no even new evidence is not going to be given and the way it ought to be given. You know, Paul, in my first book with Mohanna, um, Judge Thomas Hornsby wrote an article, uh, not a chapter, and, and one of the things he said was that in his 19th year on the bench, he finally figured out that one of his practices in responding to a particular type of protective order had been wrong. And I was just so impressed that 
he had the ethics and the honesty to say that. And that ought to be standard, and it isn't. And, and so I try to hold that up as much as I can, because we should be honoring judges who will be open like that. No, I agree. I agree. It's, it's, it's hard for all of us to admit we're wrong. And, 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 and to their credit, to be a judge, you can't sit there and second-guess yourself on everything because it'll, it'll never end. You have to have some finality. But it's, it seems to be taken to an extreme too often where they're just not going to, particularly when the child, safety of a child in front of them, you would, you would hope they would be open-minded if, if I'm not asking you to relitigate the past, Judge, but look at this new evidence. But, but that the human condition comes in and they don't want to, it, people don't want to admit they're wrong and judges in particular don't want to admit they're wrong because their decisions had a, had a bad effect on this child. Well, uh, the, but the, it does happen. I mean, you, you will have... Yeah, well, that brings us kind of to the idea of, you know, if, if we're going to change things, don't we have to educate judges and court personnel? And yet in many states, in many counties, very difficult to um, impose any requirements for any particular kind of training for judges, very difficult to, uh, you know, I, I mean, in, in our state, there's requirements for continuing education, but they get to decide what kind of a continuing education they want. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's no, um, you know, I, I mean, everybody kind of pussyfoots around it. Nobody will say, well, you have to have X number of, you know, I mean, in medicine, they'll say you have to have X number of hours in this particular arena. Um, but nobody tells judges or courts personnel you have to have X number of hours of continuing education in domestic violence. And, you know, even if you did, who gets to decide who's going to train you in domestic violence? I mean, it, that whole educating court personnel is a whole sticky wicket, is it not? No, it's very I, – I, I'm on a, I just completed a task force in Maryland. Uh, the governor uh, of Maryland and the state legislature put together that I was, I was uh, uh, about domestic violence. And one of the big issues was uh, continuing education for judges on this. And all of us, the, the advocates in this area, were highly skeptical uh, that any effect would come uh, because of a couple of reasons. One, uh, as you said, you know, it's hard to put the standards on them. Uh, and then who's going to do it? And, and we've had people try to offer my organization has it, but organizations like mine have offered to teach this and been told no because you're an advocate and I'd be listening to an advocate, which I, I, I think is the wrong <laughs> way of looking at it. But, but uh, a lot of it is you, uh, you can't push a rope, as they say. Uh, and it's a, it, you could make them sit down in the classroom for 100 hours, and if they're not, if they have a mindset already, already in there, and, and the Saunders report, if you extend that from custody evaluation to judges, it's a lot of the same thing. If their mindset is already there, they're, they're just going to figuratively speaking roll their eyes at the education in front of them. They, you know, I mean, we've all I've sat through diversity training and, and seen older uh, folks older than I am from a couple of different era literally rolling their eyes. You know, at this forced training they had, and I had I know it had no effect, no no positive effect on them. They were sitting through it because their workplace required it. You know, the law firm required it. And that's it. And I, I fear that's what we'll have. I mean, I, education in theory would be great. I think you can educate a judge if you if you have if you have a good lawyer in front of them or her doing a good job. But this is only on a case by case with a good expert and showing things. You, you can kind of educate them on your case one by one, which is not how it should be. Uh, but unfortunately, I think uh, more classroom training. Uh, you, you might reach 
some of them, but the majority of them, I think, uh, only will only mark the time because they're told to be there by the chief judge, and when they're done, they're done. I don't know what Barry's thoughts around on that, but I mean, it's just I'm not. Uh, I know it's not extremely pessimistic, but it's it's uh, it's uh, it's unfortunate. I'm not the only one in this area who thinks that. Yeah. No, I mean that's, that's exactly that's exactly right. I mean we've been having extensive discussions with the national council because they'll have judges who want to come to their trainings and you know get a lot from it, and there are others where the judges are forced and they don't pay attention. Um, yep. Something that I think is very helpful to me. I was talking to a judge from Colorado um, who was at a roundtable discussion that we were both, you know, involved in, and I asked him about a new law in Colorado that required safety be the first priority in making decisions, and I asked him how it was working, and he said that judges who in the past had run away from any kind of trainings were now begging him to set up trainings because they wanted the information because they needed it to figure out how to implement the law. And we're trying to pass the Safe Child Act, which would use all the best practices based on the research. And I think the same thing would happen, that if you change what the law is, the practices that the courts are required to do, then I think you'll get most of the wanting to hear this information. And that, that might be what we need. Okay. Um, Barry, I, I, we've got two minutes left. I, I can't believe the time went that quickly. Um, but, Barry, I wanted to ask you real, real quickly about Joan Meyer's new study. And um, is that published now? Is there, can we access that? Or Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. I'm going to track that down because that sounds like that would be really significant. And, uh, Gary, oh, Barry, I, uh, just, uh, I can send you a link. Oh, I'd like that. I would like that. Also, um, in our minute and a half that's left, um, Barry, real quickly, could you think of any resources, people who would like to know more about lawsuits against courts and court systems? Is there anything that comes to mind? Um, There was another case that got a lot of attention, Alana Krauss, who sued her GAL and I think her father and the therapist. You might want to look that up, but it was kind of interesting. Okay. All right. Paul, we've got a minute left. Any ideas for people who might need resources or be looking for resources, think that they have um, uh, a lawsuit, but where would they go? <clears throat> you, you'll need, um, obviously, you'll want a good attorney, and you're not likely to get one in the family law arena that does that because they're not going to, uh, unless they're truly advocates like Barry I on one side. Uh, I would find an um, aggressive malpractice attorney, uh, but somebody who does not specialize in family law because they're, they're, they're going to be too likely not to want to rock the boat in their own community. Uh, so okay, I, Paul, I would, I'm going to have to cut you off. Uh, sure. We've run out of time. Barry, thank you so much. Paul, thank you so much. You've shared thank a you. great deal. We're going to have to do this again. And, you know, as far as this lady in, in Orange County, good for her, and I hope she's the first yes. of many. Thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways.